Welcome to Kelly Dry's Full Spectrum Podcast, bringing together thought leaders in the technology, media, and telecommunications industries to discuss legal issues that are expected to impact today's organizations and tomorrow's marketplace. Kelly Dry Full Spectrum is produced twice monthly, and show notes are available at www.kellydryfullspectrum.com. For more in-depth commentary, head to our blog, comlawmonitor.com. All links are in the show notes. This podcast is produced by the Kelly Dry Communications Practice Group. Hello, and welcome to the latest edition of Kelly Dry's Full Spectrum Podcast. I am Steve Augustino from the Communications Practice Group of Kelly Dry and Warren, and I have with me... Brad Currier, an associate in the Communications Practice Group, Kelly Dry and Warren. And we're here again to talk about one of our favorite topics, FCC enforcement practices. On this episode, we're going to talk about enforcement at the FCC from January of 2018 forward to about the time when we're recording this now, which is in early March 2018. A lot of different things have been happening at the FCC and enforcement. Uh, A couple different things I want to talk about here. In particular, we've now had over a year of enforcement under Chairman Pai and close to a year now, I believe, since Rosemary Harold has taken over as the Enforcement Bureau Chief. And we've started to see trends and things that are different about the FCC since then. So I think we'll talk a little bit about that, Brad, and then we'll jump into maybe a couple of the things that have happened in the last couple of months, okay? Sounds good. All right. So let's talk a little bit about enforcement just in general here. You know, very different enforcement between Rosemary Herald and this current FCC and what was under the Travis LeBlanc-led Enforcement Bureau under Chairman Wheeler. And Brad, I don't know if you feel comfortable talking a little bit about that, but let's just talk a little bit maybe about where, what we're seeing from the current Enforcement Bureau, sort of what what are their areas of focus at this point? Sure. So for the areas of focus, the PI FCC continues to be focusing in on universal service fraud, unauthorized operations, and interference type issues. But what we've seen overall in the last year is that the Enforcement Bureau itself has been, at least compared to its predecessor, Uh, less active and certainly less visible than its predecessor. There are less press releases that are tied solely to the Enforcement Bureau and less of the what we call, quote-unquote, like big-ticket items coming on a semi-monthly basis. Right. Yeah, I I would agree with that. I mean, I wouldn't say that they're, you know, they're not working diligently, right? But, you know, we we checked before we came over here, and as of March here, there have only been 10 releases, headlines, listed on the Enforcement Bureau's website. So they're definitely taking... A less prominent position. I yeah, would I say. think that's true. And again, it's not that these investigations aren't happening. What we're seeing is we're seeing fewer, but in many cases, enforcement actions involving much larger amounts of money and more complex violations. So it may be just a situation where we have the types of investigations that they're doing are taking longer, resulting in less actions coming out during the year. Yeah, it should be. Yeah, it could, it could be. That's a good thing. Um, so let's get into this now. In, in this episode, we're going to talk about a few different things. We're first going to talk about universal service enforcement, some of the actions there. Then we're going to talk about unauthorized operations and interference issues, another big area that's been there. 
touch a little bit on broadcast enforcement, and then I want to finish up talking about the Telephone Consumer Protections Act or the TCPA or robocalls as it is. So let's start with universal service, Brett. Sure, let's get into it. So with universal service, as we mentioned up at the top, it continues to be a key enforcement focus area for the PI FCC. And I want to mention one particular matter, the Data Connects Notice of Apparent Liability. So in January, the FCC issues an $18.7 million proposed fine for alleged violations of one of the universal service funds, the rural health care program. Data Connects was one of the five largest rural health care program funding recipients. And what they've been accused of is basic kickback scheme where Data Connects allegedly referred rural health care providers to a consultant with the understanding that the consultant would direct the health care institutions to select Data Connects as their telecommunications provider under the program. Uh, Data Connects also apparently misrepresented service costs to boost the amount of support that they received from the FCC. Now, that's all the facts, but the important things are the trends here. And this item follows two important trends that we've noticed under the PI FCC. First, the FCC threatened to revoke Data Connects authorizations. Chairman Pai and Commissioner O'Reilly support revocation as a non-monetary enforcement tool after criticizing the prior FCC leadership for adopting large fines without collecting and not shutting down repeat violators. However, it's important to note the PI FCC has not formally initiated a revocation proceeding yet based on one of these warnings, and there are many procedural hurdles with revocation like ALJ hearings. Second, the proposed fine in Data Connects includes a treble damages penalty equal to three times Data Connects quote-unquote ill-gotten gain, basically the amount that they got from the program through these alleged violations. Now, this represents a variation on the substantial economic gain upward adjustment factor that the FCC considers when assessing penalties, and this can quickly push up forfeiture amounts. Yeah. Now, in many ways, that's that's really not that new, right? I mean, the upward adjustment factor has been in the statute forever. With contributions, the three times penalty has been there, and that was expanded under the past commission to be a more general policy, but we're certainly seeing more and more use of it here now. And more importantly, use across administrations now, which we're seeing now under the PI FCC is what we also saw under the Wheeler FCC. I also point out another trend, that the FCC recognized the potential disruption that this item could have to healthcare providers that contracted with Data Connects, and it indicated that it would consider waiving their competitive bidding rules for these affected healthcare providers to reach out and select a new provider. So rural healthcare providers should check their current contracts and consult with counsel if they've been affected by these recent items. Yeah, and that is an important one. That's an interesting thing that they've been doing. We saw it in one other one last year. So this is really now the indication that that wasn't a one-off and that's potentially a new policy here. Sure. The Data Connects item actually marks the second rural healthcare program fraud enforcement action in the past year, and we're, we're starting to see it setting the stage for a lot of these trends that are probably going to go forward as more of these enforcement actions come out. Right, right. And then one other thing I want to point out with respect to this moving beyond this particular FCC action is that universal service is also a focus of enforcement outside of the FCC. There are other statutes that apply in addition to the Communications Act. Most notably, the False Claims Act applies in this situation, or at least arguably applies to universal service funds. And we are seeing and continue to see that kind of enforcement action. We talked about this a little bit at Kelly Dry's ninth annual USF webinar last month. You will see these in a number of different places. Most recently, within this time period here, there was an indictment brought in Dallas against the Dallas Charter School CEO and the company he contracted with for also allegedly defrauding there. It was the E-rate program, the program for schools and libraries. 
but the same type of thing. The fraud undermined the competitive bidding process, arguably raised the rates that the government was therefore supporting through the Universal Service Fund and was implemented through kickbacks here. So what happened there we're seeing is other enforcement activity happening. And it's an important thing to keep in mind as you are participating in these types of programs, all the different ways in which you have to make sure that you're dotting your I's and crossing your T's as it is. No, it's absolutely right. And just like with the rural health care program and E-rate, we're seeing Chairman Pai with criticism of both the administration and the enforcement involving these programs. At least with E-rates coming for particular criticism after an uptick in complaints alleging conflicts of interest between schools and their consultants and providers and also claims of inflated costs. Yeah. And E-rate, this is another issue we talked about in, in the recent webinar. E-rate in the last year, Chairman Pai really was focusing on making sure that the administration of it worked properly. That is the process through which schools and libraries could apply, that they were getting prompt decisions and things like that, sort of trying to make the trains run on time, if you will. What we expect coming forward is another look at the structure and potential rule changes involving the E-rate program. So that's probably something to look forward to in 2018 here. Okay, so shifting from universal service, I'm going to turn to just one particular action involving broadcasting advertising. So broadcasting was not previously a real area of focus for the PI FCC, but they released a major action in late December against Sinclair Broadcasting, specifically a $13.3 million proposed fine for sponsorship ID violations. Now, this is the largest proposed fine ever for the FCC regarding sponsorship ID violations. So just quick background, sponsorship ID rules require broadcasters airing paid programming to include announcements stating the program was sponsored and the name of the sponsoring entity. And here the FCC claims Sinclair aired programming about a cancer institute without disclosing that the institute sponsored programming. The FCC also alleges that Sinclair provided that paid programming to non-Sinclair stations without disclosing that sponsorship arrangement. Even when Sinclair did announce that the programming was a paid advertisement, it failed to identify the institute as the sponsor. Now, Sinclair did not dispute that it did not provide sponsorship ID announcements, and it subsequently aired announcements acknowledging that sponsorship relationship. Now, what's important here when you get down to how the FCC applies these facts is how they come up with the number for the forfeiture. So though the base forfeiture was approximately $7 million based on the number of violations alone, the FCC nearly doubled the fine by applying upward adjustments based on various factors, including Sinclair's large national audience. Now, this follows a trend that we saw under the previous administration back in 2014-2015 with some enforcement actions that increased the penalties against Viacom and ESPN for airing emergency alert tones as part of a movie advertisement. It was actually during a trailer for the movie Olympus Has Fallen, and during it they actually played actual emergency alert tones, which, as you can imagine, not only set off some public panic issues, but actually can activate. We have enough trouble telling fact from fiction these days. Right, exactly. Have that kind of confusion out there. Now, even with this being the largest fine ever for sponsorship ID violations, the Democrat commissioners still criticize the size of the forfeiture as small compared to the percentage of Sinclair's overall revenues. And this is coming out as part of the larger fight over the pending Sinclair Tribune transaction. One other thing I'll note about the NAL, the proposed fine, is that it actually includes a chart breaking down the number of violations and the penalty amount per violation. Now, this is not usually done, at least publicly, and it provides clarity to violators in the public, but it remains to be seen whether this is going to become a trend. 
it has been an issue where the FCC doesn't necessarily want to specify its exact mathematical calculations of its forfeitures because that may limit its flexibility in the future when faced with similar violations. Sure. Well, it feeds practitioners like us with arguments for how you're supposed to look at these or situations in the future. Exactly. So yeah. it's unclear whether this broadcasting enforcement will become a focus for the PI FCC or much more likely this is going to be a one or two off to show that the agency remains on the beat. Yeah, and I think the comment that you made here earlier on this, that this really ought to be viewed as part of the larger Sinclair Tribune transaction, which is still pending at the FCC. And so, number one, when you have a pending transaction, it's very common that you need to clear out any enforcement-related inquiries or ending pending NALs, et cetera. So we'll often see around a deal we'll see an enforcement action or a settlement of a particular type of enforcement action. So that's not unusual, really. But, you know, the differences between the commissioners here potentially foreshadows those differences that we expect in the underlying transaction. And I think that's an important part of that enforcement action itself. So moving from broadcasters, now I want to hit on another issue. This one actually is and it continues to be an area of enforcement for the FCC. That's pirate radio and interference. So not only has it been a trend of the PI FCC overall, but it's been a specific major issue for Commissioner O'Reilly. Uh, just a couple of quick items I want to talk about. First is a pirate radio action actually issued in January. It was a $2,500 settlement against a Florida pirate radio operator. Now, the FCC originally proposed a $15,000 fine against the pirate radio operator, and the operator then claimed inability to pay. Inability to pay is one of those downward forfeiture adjustment factors that the FCC actually is required by law to look at before assessing a penalty. Now, while this item is an unprecedented, it's rare to see a pirate radio case settled with a payment. Usually, pirate radio operators refuse to respond or pay, forcing the FCC to refer the matter to the Department of Justice, which may not have the resources or can't dedicate these resources to prosecutions or decline to take up the case entirely. Now, this item included a suspended penalty provision in the settlement. This was first used under the prior Enforcement Bureau on the Wheeler administration and Travis LeBlanc as the chief. And what happens here is that the pirate radio operator will be required to pay $12,500, so that's the difference between the original $15,000 proposed fine and what he's going to be paying under the settlement. If the pirate radio operator operates another pirate station within the next 20 years or misled the FCC about the financial condition, and that goes to the fact that the claimed inability to pay was the basis for dropping the fine down in the settlement. Yeah, and that, If I can interrupt you there just a little bit, I mean, that sort of suspended penalty is interesting to me. It's a, it's a relatively new occurrence. I don't think the commission's used it very much. No. So again, what you're seeing, like we've talked about this before, is we're seeing trends, and importantly, we're seeing now trends across administrations. So this was something that was done for the first time under the prior administration, the Wheeler FCC and the Travis LeBlanc consent decrees. We started seeing suspended penalty provisions where after an NAL, or sometimes even if there wasn't a prior NAL, there would be in the settlement agreement a condition that a person can pay a lesser amount as part of the settlement, but is on the hook for that difference in payment between what they originally proposed and what they ended up paying if they commit another violation right. or if there's some other condition. But it's only been used in the case of pirate radio at this point, right? No. no it's more broader than that. It's okay. been used in many cases, many different types of violations. Yeah. yeah. So that'll be one thing to watch is like how far does that really go? It's not a standard practice that settlements I do have a suspended penalty, and I wouldn't certainly recommend that 
in any clients that I'm working with uh, in any enforcement actions we're doing. So we'll have to watch to see how broad that concept reaches eventually. Yeah, no, it's certainly been used in other contexts outside of the pirate radio. All right, so let's talk about the last two, and then I want to talk a little bit about TCPA. Sure, another one. This is actually just more because it's very interesting. I talk about briefly about the town of Ward, and this was a what they call a notice of unauthorized operation issued in February against a town in Colorado for operating a pirate radio station. Now, the FCC claims the town is operating an unlicensed FM station from a trailer park next to City Hall. And although not required before proposing a fine, this warning informs the town that the station operation is illegal and can result in fines or seizures. Now, this is a trend, again, of expanding liability for pirate operations to landowners. This is something that's being pushed particularly by Commissioner O'Reilly, even if the landowner may not be directly participating in the station's operation. Now, in an unusual move for an active investigation, Commissioner O'Reilly actually took to Twitter to criticize the town, which contains a couple hundred people. And I've seen recent reports that the station has gone dark recently. So this may end up resolving itself. Yeah, yeah that's interesting. But that recalls to me, a you know, brings back in mind to me, a comment that Commissioner Clyburn made in the context of pirate radio before, and that the instances of this may, in some circumstances, indicate that the FCC just isn't licensing enough low-power FM stations. Yeah, that's right. And so just a brief thing, it's on the same sort of category of unauthorized operations, but it's not a pirate radio. But I do want to talk about one other item involving a Lithia Toyota. This is a car dealership, and the FCC issued a citation in January saying the car dealership's lighting was causing interference to a nearby Verizon LTE cell site. So they requested information from the dealership and also threatened fines for noncompliance. It, it's lighting, like it's parking lot lights. Yeah, industrial yeah. lighting. Yeah. Uh, it's, it was, I think it was an outdoor portal lighting that they were using. And actually, one of the ways that they found out this was the issue was they noticed that it went away during the daytime. So they basically figured out it must be when the lights are on. So that's part of helping the investigation. Now, lighting interference is an issue that pops up occasionally, and the recent citation shows that this issue hasn't gone completely away. Now, there's no clear one cause of this, and certainly it doesn't say in the item what the cause is here. So it could be an installation issue, could be equipment, particularly not so much the lighting itself, but the ballast where it connects into the power source could be part of the issue. And while the issue may be rare, it can be expensive to resolve, and certainly there's going to be costs if the lighting needs to be replaced. Yeah, It certainly can be a, a surprise, I'd imagine. That car dealership didn't imagine that they could get in FCC trouble for installing lights. No, certainly, and you imagine that most of these cases are going to involve people who have never had any experience with these issues before. Yeah, interesting. Okay, all right, so let's spend the last minute then talking about the TCPA. And I don't, within the time period that we're talking about here, we don't really have any interesting TCPA items to discussed. There was one denial of reconsideration in a junk fax case, which affirms an $18 million forfeiture action against a junk faxer that was imposed in February of 2016. So it's really not news, the content of that. But what I think I want to talk about a little bit here is potential TCPA enforcement coming up, because there have been some interesting statements in the last week about uh, the role of enforcement in the TCPA. And I'll start with just noting that we got a major decision from the D.C. Circuit on March 16th. And one of the statements from Chairman Pai, his statement was, hey, you know, that's great. We're back on the beat on all of these things, including, you know, that we are acting very quickly against robocallers, those who are originating these particular calls. And he cited to 
$200 million in fines that he had proposed against two robocallers at the very beginning of his administration. We talked about it in previous podcasts. We blogged about it a little bit as well. So he was kind of saying, okay, we're back. We're ready to do this, but... Right. What we've also been seeing, too, is it's not just Commissioner, uh, sorry, Chairman Pai. We've also seen statements from the other commissioners, and particularly just focus on Commissioner Rosenworcel. So you had mentioned statements that were issued after the D.C. Circuit's decision. Commissioner Rosenworcel also put out a statement at that time talking about stating robocalls are out of control and will increase unless the FCC takes action. And then she issued another statement recently in response to an FCC item that came out uh, last week noting that it's been six months since the FCC issued an enforcement action regarding robocalling and nearly a year since robocall strike force identified specific technology to combat the issue. So there's definitely been a call to action from Commissioner Rosenworcel on the other side of the aisle, too, to bring this into, I guess, major focus. Yeah, yeah, we're kind of seeing again, right? The tables have turned a little bit with the change in administrations. Now you have the Democrats who are in the minority saying, hey, you're not doing enough enforcement or you're not doing the right kind of enforcement. So, Yeah, and you see everyone in agreement that th- this is an issue. It's now about the speed and what's going to happen next, how quickly and how much. Yeah, exactly. So that one, we'll leave that as, I guess, a little bit of a teaser, something to look forward to. Maybe in our future enforcement podcast here, we'll talk about other TCPA-related actions that come forward. So with that, I want to pause. I want to thank everybody for listening. Thank you for following Kelly Dry's Full Spectrum. And we encourage you to continue to follow us, work with us in all the different ways in which we try to reach out to you between the podcasts, the webinars, our blogs, etc. And we look forward to talking to you next time. The views and ideas expressed on this program are strictly those of the hosts or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views or ideas held by Kelly Dry and Warren LLP, its staff or management.